And one more time, the Apostle Paul comes back to announce that you are free in Christ. And he says, live free and love free. Listen to the word of God in Galatians 5, 13 through 18. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So far the reading of God's Word. Thirty miles west of here, there stands a woman who raises her torch to the sky, and she cries out, we are told, with silent lips, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. This magnificent poem by Emma Lazarus, there emblazoned on the base of the Statue of Liberty. She says, the the wretched refuse of your teeming shore, send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. And those most famous of her words those who are yearning to breathe free. And so America has been that great experiment, has it not, where people from all across the planet have come yearning, yearning to breathe free from under tyranny or communism or whatever despotism is out there, yearning to breathe free. And the lady calls them, She calls them to freedom. Come, she says. Why does it grab our hearts so deeply? Not just because we are New Yorkers. Why does it grab us? I'll tell you why. Because it is the deepest aspiration of our hearts to be free. And the greatest freedom is not political freedom. What we have seen time and time and time again is that the greatest freedom is spiritual freedom. So he says in chapter 5, verse 1, that we looked at a number of weeks ago, he says, you were called, uh, he says, it is for freedom Christ has set us free. And now again, 15 verses later, you were called to freedom, brothers. And he echoes the wonderful words of Jesus. You know them from John chapter 8. Jesus said, you shall know the truth. And the truth will set you free. And then Jesus says a few verses later, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. 
Now, if the Statue of Liberty calls people to be free with earthly freedom, how much greater is it that Paul says here, you were called to freedom. You were summoned. Summoned from what? Summoned from slavery. That's what we've read in chapter 4 again and again. You were in slavery. And yet now you were called out of slavery to be free. Remember, I quoted it at the beginning of the service. If you were late, you missed it. In Galatians 4, verse 7, we are told God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. The Spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. And then Paul explains, so you are no longer slaves. If you're a Christian, you're no longer a slave. You've been called into freedom. Freedom from what? And we've been now studying this. And we've seen in chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4, you are free from the guilt of your sin. You are free from the shame of your sin. You are free from the penalty of your sin. Why? Because Christ became accursed for you. He became accursed. He took the curse of the law upon Himself. The punishment that I deserve, the punishment that you deserve, fell on Him and you are free from condemnation. Elias read it earlier. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are free from the power of the law to condemn you. But now, in this part of chapter 5, he begins to teach that you are not only free from the guilt and the condemnation of your sin, but you are also free from the power of sin. And this is very important. And we're five chapters into this, and he finally gets here, but he does get to this. And Martin Luther, in his comment on this, he says, you know, that liberty, that is freedom, liberty must always defend itself against two great enemies, legalism and license. Legalism is that slavery of performance-oriented life that can get you nowhere, but license is the illusion that grace gives you a license to sin. And you just waddle along through life doing all kinds of dastardly things with terrible speech and horrible attitudes as though the grace of God now sets you free to live like that. And Luther says, and Paul is teaching us here, that these are the two great enemies of grace. In the book of Romans, you, you know it's the same thing, right? The first five chapters. Oh, how we love the first five chapters of the book of Romans. Grace. Forgiveness. Justification by Christ's atoning work, freedom. And then he starts chapter 6, verse 1, with what question? After five relentless chapters on the grace of God, he says, what then? Shall we sin that grace may abound? He says, of course not. But you know what? You know what? You're not preaching grace properly if you never get to the question, which is an obvious question. Should should we then sin? Why? Because you really do want people to understand they are free. They're free. You are free. He loves you. His smile is on you. The wrath fell on Jesus, not on you. Do you got that? So be free. Live free. But now, other side, do not use your freedom 
as an opportunity to indulge the flesh. I was trying to think about when this experience was mine in, in an analogous way, and I'll tell you when it was for me. I don't know about you. When does a teenager feel most free? I'll tell you when it was for me, without question. It's when I got my driver's license. Oh, what a day. What a great day. I turned 16 and I was down at the, at the driver vehicle, vehicle registration bureau and I got my application, I got my permit, I did, took my test, I passed my test. And there's nothing better than having your driver's license. And I had a 1962 Corvair. A big steering wheel. It could, it could get up to maybe 62 miles an hour. Putt, 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 putt. And I didn't care. I loved that car. Because that car was freedom. And when a teenager gets their driver's license, you know, it is a tremendous blessing. It's a tremendous blessing. You can help your mom. You can go pick up your brother, your sister. You can help out. You can run to the store for them. You can take yourself over and back uh, to your friend's house for a study group. You can do all kinds of fantastic things when you get your driver's license. However, once you get that driver's license, what else do you need to remember? Don't abuse it. And I remember my father. Son, the driver's license is a privilege. It's a privilege. And with that privilege, he went, you, know, you know the rest of the line. Comes great responsibility, and you must be very careful. It's a 5,000-pound weapon out there. You have to have your eyes on the road, never ever step into the car intoxicated. Watch carefully, look both ways, and then look again. All that. And then don't use it for evil. Use it for good. I think that's an analogous, that's analogous to what's going on here. Boy, get, driving is fun. I loved getting my driver's license, but don't use it as an opportunity for evil. And so since we're free in Christ and not free to sin, but rather we are free from sin, this passage now talks about the fact that it's easy to say but hard to do. And points two and three are this. That with the freedom, you must be aware of the fact that there are two great wars going on, two great conflicts in your life. Point two from this text will be that there is a war going on in your heart. And point three will be that there is a war going on in your relationships. And Paul addresses them both right here in our text. Verse 16, but I say... Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Isn't that clear? There's going to be a battle. All kinds of tension internally inside of you. What? He's talking to Christians. He's not talking to non-Christians. He's saying, Christian, you're going to have a battle inside of your soul. And the term flesh, the term flesh here is not talking about the human body, okay? If you know uh, Pauline writing, you know that the, the, um, that the New Testament is referring here, and the NIV actually translate it, the sinful nature. 
And that's what he's talking about, not the hair and the elbow and the muscles when he speaks of the flesh. He's talking about the sinful nature. And you and I are born with a fallen, sinful human nature. And it stays with us until the day we die. And even if you are born again, and even if you're a new creation in Christ, until that day when you are transformed and glorified into heaven, there will be this battle. There will be the flesh, the sinful nature, and it will seek to drag you down and seduce you back into the world and will tempt you to sin. And it will. Some people don't agree with that. Some Christian theology, I think, supposes that the flesh just evaporates. You know, that's bad theology. It doesn't when you become a Christian. There will be a conflict. We are told it right here in this text. The spirit is opposed to the flesh. And so for the rest of your life, internally, you will have a battle. And I'll tell you something else that's so important. Moms and dads, it is so important for you to teach your children that they are in a battle and that there is a war going on for their heart every day. I know I've talked about this book before, Paul Tripp's great book, Age of Opportunity, for parents of teenagers. Really, it's a great book called Age of Opportunity. And Paul Tripp, he's, he's shameless with his children. When he would drive them to school, as they got out of the car, his last words to them would be, and don't forget, and they would say, we know, Dad, there's a battle going on out there for our hearts every day. He said, good. And in your family devotions, in your prayer times, moms and dads with your children, they need to hear you pray for the Spirit of God to help you in your battle. Model for them that you need the Lord in your battle. And then warn them that there's a battle going on for their hearts every day. What do you do when you want to sin again? Verse 16 tells us, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. To walk in the Spirit, this is not some sort of mystical, ecstatic trance that you fall into. Not in terms of the, the language that we have here. You know, Claire Davis, our professor that Martin and I love so much, you hear us quote him all the time. He used to say, he's an old man in his late 80s now, but he used to say, the Holy Spirit is not a spook. It's not, some, it's not voodoo magic. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ that comes to dwell inside your heart. And He operates in very clear ways in the Bible. The first thing He does is that He, one of the first things He does is He convicts you of sin. You know, when you experience the conviction of sin, you should maybe be sad that you have sinned, but, but is that a good thing or a bad thing when you experience conviction of sin? Should you say rats or should you say thank you? It's a good thing, and you should say thank you. This is a sign that God is at work in your life. What would be worse? What would be worse? If He didn't convict you of your sin, if He just let you continue in your 
stupidity and evil and wretchedness. Wouldn't that be worse? So, so the Holy Spirit, we're told in John 16, He, he, he uh, convicts of sin. And not just sin, but we say the sin beneath the sin. He then begins to reveal the motives underneath. You know, if you say something mean to somebody else, that's sinful. You need to work on your tongue control. But what's going on underneath? Pride. Presumption. Arrogance, maybe. Who knows what it is? Let the Holy Spirit unpack that for you. To walk in the Spirit is to invite Him to shine the light into your heart. Can you do that? Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Why? Why do I need that? Because there's a battle going on. The Spirit is opposed to the flesh. Okay, every day of my life, I will be in that battle. And we, well, I'll say I, am tempted to ignore and indulge my sin. And maybe you are too. So we need the Holy Spirit to take the law of God and to use the character of God revealed in His revealed ways to show us where we fall short and to welcome that when He shines the light or holds up the mirror, or whatever biblical image you want to use. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. And then, you know what He does? He applies the grace of God to your life. And if you're a Christian, this is really good news. Because then the grace of God becomes the power. It's tied into this whole freedom concept. The grace of God becomes the power for you to turn from your sin, to acknowledge it and to say, maybe there's a better way to glorify God. And His Word shows you how you should walk before Him. He applies the grace. Grace does this. You see, when, when you want to know what it is that can actually teach you to say no to your sin, the, one of the best verses in the Bible is from the book of Titus, the little tiny book of Titus, chapter 2, verse 11. And you look on the back of your sermon outline, you can see this verse here. Really... This is an extraordinary passage. Titus says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness. The NIV translates it, teaching us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. What is it that teaches you to say no to sin? You know, the preacher up wagging his finger at you. Is that going to teach you to say no to sin? Not according to Paul. The grace of God. The freedom won and purchased for you. Why, that is what teaches us to say no and to turn. You see, grace woos us. Grace a great word. Grace woos us. When a young man wants the affection of a young lady and he courts her, what do we say he's doing? He's wooing her. And he's attracting himself to her. The Bible says Christ's love compels us, and His grace 
teaches us to say no. And then we ask in our heart of hearts, how can you continue in sin, John? How can you continue in this greed or this lust or this cruelty or this racial prejudice or this um, selfishness? when, When He loves you so much and He's modeled for you and He's put His Spirit in His heart, You see, in the hand-to-hand combat against sin, we walk in the Spirit. Stronger each day, each day, each day. Show me your way. We just sang that. Let the law of God convict you of your sin. Let the grace of God wash you, empower you, energize you, and see the cross of Christ. See that... You have been adopted into His family. Now, don't you want to live like a member of His family would live? And Jesus is our very example of this. For Jesus walked in the Spirit. Did you know that? Hmm. Right before all the powers of hell were unleashed against Jesus Christ in the wilderness, as He left to go into the wilderness to face Satan. What do we read? Filled with the Holy Spirit, Jesus went into the wilderness. In the synagogue, in his first sermon, his first sermon, Jesus quotes from Isaiah to describe his ministry. The rocket takes off as Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Wow. He looks out over his people in Luke 10, full of joy and full of the Holy Spirit. He casts out demons. How? By the Spirit of God. And in Hebrews 9, an obscure passage that, that, that explains the entire life of our Savior, we read that the power of His life was made, this is Hebrews 9, 14, was made through the eternal Spirit by which He offered Himself without blemish to God. So Jesus walked in the Spirit. And now the Spirit of His Son is in our hearts. The Spirit that cries, Abba, Father. So you walk in the Spirit of His Son. And Paul tells us that same Spirit dwells in you. Yes, there's a war going on in your hearts. Don't be surprised, but be ready. Now, this third point Third point is, not only is there a war inside your heart, but there's also a war in your relationships. And now, preaching turns to meddling. For you were called to freedom. This is verse 13. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You you want the law? I'll give you the law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And so he unpacks the war in our relationship in a positive way and in a negative way. And on the positive side, it's really, it's very beautiful. He says, if you walk in the Spirit, love one another. Love. I told you I don't quote Greek very often, but there's one Greek word you should know. What is it? 
Agape, right, agape. That is the Greek word for love right here. You don't have to drop it at a party, but, but I tell you, you should know. Agape love is this unique word in the Greek language that is different from lust, and it's different from just, I love this food. It's this word that he's using here is the word that speaks of a self-forgetting, sacrificial caring for another person at the point of their need. This is love. The self-forgetting, sacrificial caring for another person at the point of their need. This is the way Jesus loved. Oh, I wish I could love like that. Don't you wish you could love like that? I've been thinking a lot this week about the word narcissism. Narcissism. What is that? When I think of narcissism, my, my definition, it's not in the DSM-3 medical guy, but my definition of narcissism is my own massive self-preoccupation. And I know the psychiatrists have these new designations out there, and there, there may be something descriptive that you could call narcissistic personality disorder, but I have yet to meet someone who didn't have it. Because we're all on that continuum. Some of us are way on that continuum, so it might be a helpful diagnosis, I suspect. I don't know. But I have yet to meet someone who does not have narcissistic personality disorder, that massive self-preoccupation that even so often when, with my best works and my boldest statements, there's still a part of it that is so polluted by my own pride and self-centeredness and, and ultimately the desire to serve me. Huh. And so I need the Holy Spirit of God to cleanse me, to set me free from my massive self-preoccupation so I can be with you and I can serve you and care for you and forget about myself and see you at the point of your need and step into your world and love you. That's what the Spirit of God does, isn't it? For the whole law, that which God desires of us, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. God knows we love ourselves, but the Spirit of God then empowers us to love our neighbor. You see, wow. Live free, he says, but now he says, love free. Free in Christ, free to love like Jesus loves you. Oh, so many wonderful examples of this glamorous, huge examples that are breathtaking. I just Luke Jensen gave me this book uh, two weeks ago. He's new to our church. Um, he gave me this little book, Kisses from Katie, New York Times bestseller about a young woman who graduated from high school in Nashville, Tennessee. Homecoming queen president of her class, destined to one of the great universities in America. But unfortunately for Katie, she went on a mission trip with her church to Uganda. And then she said, Mom, Dad, I'm not going to college. 
I'm going to Uganda to start an orphanage. Are you crazy? The world is your oyster. Her friends, are you out of your mind? She moves to Uganda. She started several orphanages. She has personally adopted and is now the mother at age 22 of 13 little girls. I'm never going to do that. You're never going to do that, okay? But that's that striking example of this kind of love. And I'm just having a wonderful, cathartic experience reading Christ and Katie, you know. But what about you? Men, will you make the bed for your wives? I'm not asking you to go to Uganda. Kids, will you wash the dishes for your mother? I'm not asking you to go to Uganda. Will you get your clothes in the hamper? Somebody needs to pay their cell phone bill. And they're short on cash. Will you pay it for them? Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. (laughs) My wife, she's such an example to me of this. I have so many stories to tell you of ways that she, behind the scenes, blesses people in extraordinary ways. I'll just say this. Notice there's a a $40 expenditure. And it ends up... She bought this valentine for someone who actually hurt me very much. $40 Valentine gift. For who? That's love. The Spirit of God takes narcissistic people like us in our massive self-preoccupation and He begins to set us free. Okay? That... And as he calls it the fulfillment of the law, the very thing that's impossible to do, we do. But also very important, he presents a striking and horrible contrast in verse 15. He says, what? But if you bite and devour each other, watch out that you are not consumed by each other. And oh, where did this come from? This is jarring. You're free. You're free. Love one another. Trumpets, grace, glory. And then, bam! He says, but I know you. So, if you bite and devour one another, watch out. Who? Surely not me. Watch out. And the words in the NIV, or the New Application Bible Commentary, pointed out that the words actually increase in intensity as the sentence goes on. The bite is the spring of a viper whose fangs grab into another person. And then the picture of devouring there is of the lion feasting on the carcass 
of its victim. And then the word consume, it means annihilate, the utter ruin and destruction that comes to the church of Jesus Christ when she bites and devours each other. It's in the present active tense. And apparently the Galatians had gotten quite good at this. They'd gotten quite good at this. Oh, what happens? What happens when Christian cannibalism, that's what I call this, Christian cannibalism happens? What, what is the result? The result is people get hurt. The result is that the testimony of the church is tarnished and the honor of Christ is disgraced. What happens is that the enemies of the church of Jesus cackle with delight. And who wins when we bite and devour each other, when we gossip and slander, when we, with innuendo, do that? Da- who wins? Nobody wins. The devil wins. So, point four. Paul tells us he will give you the victory in both wars, in both wars. As you walk by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit will win the war and keep you free. Walk by the Spirit. Easy to say, hard to do, because I remind you again, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the Spirit are in conflict, okay? So be aware, be awake to that. There's a war going on in your heart and in your relationships. But now, Christian, ask this, do I have the Holy Spirit? Do you? And the answer is, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. Some people teach you can be a Christian and not have the Holy Spirit. That is clearly an error. Why? Because Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in Him and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And Romans 8, 9, it tells us, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anybody who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. And if you've been adopted into the family of God, then He says, He has poured out His Spirit into your hearts, that Spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. So you have the Holy Spirit resident in you. So live your life in partnership with Abba, Abba Father. Every morning, good morning, Father. Throughout the day, here we go, Father, into the meeting. All right, Father, Holy Spirit, fill me. I have a friend who used a lot of LSD in his life, and he managed to damage his brain severely, but he became a Christian. He became a Christian. He said this, look, Pastor John, I don't know too much Bible, but I can't remember Bible, but every morning when I wake up, I say, Heavenly Father, fill me with your Holy Spirit and let me walk around leaking all day. That's pretty good. That's pretty sharp. Let it flow out and bless other people all day wherever you go. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Lady Liberty was right, isn't she? 30 miles to the west. We do yearn to be free. And we yearn for the greatest freedom of all, that freedom in Christ. 
If you are here today and you say, I don't know anything of this. My guilt is just so heavy on me. My sense of failure is the only thing that I see. Then today, I invite you to become a Christian. I invite you to hear the summons. You are called to be free. It's not John Yenchko calling you. It's Jesus calling you. Do you hear that today? Maybe someone you say, for the first time, enough with religion. I want freedom in Christ. And we're going to sing in just a moment. And you'll be able to ask Christ, acknowledge Christ in your heart as your Lord and your Savior. But the rest of us, the rest of us, what do we need? We say, Lord, there's a war in our hearts and in our relationships. And we surrender ourselves to you like the, like the clay surrenders to the potter. Come and mold and shape and remake me this day and every day for your glory. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we are free. And we yearn, we do yearn for more of your freedom in our lives. So, hear our prayer now. We ask you to do that transformation in us that we so do yearn for, we long for it. You know those corners of our lives. You know those deck, tech, deck chairs that need to be rearranged. You know those attitudes of the heart that need to be purged. You know those habits that you want to replace. Just like I loved my driver's license, Lord, but I needed the warning. Watch out. Don't use it irresponsibly. We commit our freedom in Christ to you, and we live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.